Welcome to What the Risk, Exposing Business Blind Spots, an interview-based podcast series that discusses risk management topics. Have you ever been blindsided in a business situation? Think about your entire computer system going down, a supplier that cannot deliver, or your biggest customer declaring bankruptcy, or your new marketing strategy completely missing the mark. These are visceral what-the-risk moments. Your exact words may be different, but the feeling is the same. When everyone's eyes are focused on the next sale, high-impact, low-visibility risks often get overlooked. We call these blind spots, and these blind spots cause what-the-risk moments. I am your host, Larry Gordon of Gordon Risk Solutions. Join us on this journey as we learn to ask the right questions, expose potential pitfalls, and empower you to turn the what-the-risk moments into I've Got This victories. Welcome to episode 105, season one, episode five. This episode is gonna focus on information security in the world of risk management. We're gonna talk about data protection, data management, and risk mitigation activities. And for lenders and investors, we have a due diligence evaluation activities section as part of the Blind Spot Insider. Companies, both large and small, are experiencing cybersecurity issues and breaches at a growing rate. The threat landscape has evolved significantly over the past few years. And there have been ongoing high-profile attacks across many industries. One source states that cybercrime is forecast to cost the global economy $10.5 trillion by 2025. It feels like businesses have never been more vulnerable when large companies fall victim. What should smaller businesses know about protecting themselves? Well, our guest today is uniquely qualified to help unpack the issues associated with the what the risk information security moments. This allows us to learn from his experience, enabling us to expose blind spots in our businesses. James Azar is our guest today. He continues to appear in the 40 under 40 cybersecurity list published by Top Cyber News Magazine. James' true passion is the intersection of security and business where innovation and out-of-the-box thinking are needed. He is an entrepreneurial CISO with 20 years of diverse background, both in startups and large enterprises, leading information security and engineering teams. James is currently the CTO, Chief Technology Officer at AP4 Group. James is a global public speaker on the subject of cybersecurity, and he's the host of a fast-growing cybersecurity cyberhub podcast, CISO Talk, and new and noteworthy privacy podcast called Goodbye Privacy. We're fortunate to have him with us today. Welcome, my friend, to the What the Risk podcast. Larry, thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. So, James, everybody hears about CISO, and they hear about information technology, but let's do some level setting. What does a CISO do? So very interesting question, and I think that very much depends on an organization. But overall, a CISO is a security partner for the executive leadership team in terms of assessing cybersecurity and information risks that a business could encounter. Okay. That simple. That simple. Okay, and what does their normal day-to-day look like? <laughs> Again, now, now, now you're taking us down a road, right? And now you're taking <laughs> us down a path. So uh, I'll tell you this. It depends on the maturity of an organization, mm-hmm. right? But an average CISO kind of first thing you start off your day with is 
what's different? What happened from when I logged off yesterday to when I logged on today in terms of the changes in our risk posture to the organization? What in the landscape, uh, what in the global technology landscape or regulatory landscape or uh, uh, has happened in, in this time frame of, you know, sometimes it could be four hours and sometimes it could be 14 that would have to get my team together to assess the new risks that are presented to the business. Okay. And, and, and I think this falls into the different types of roles that a CISO could wear. In some organizations, you see that be kind of a, a second line of defense, more of a governance type of deal. Uh, some organizations put their CISOs reporting to their COO or CEO, and it's first and second line. So you're doing governance and you've got a governance team, but you've also got a first line of defense team and operations and engineering team that's kind of in there. And you've got your third line doing your audits and and and, and everything else. Um, and in the more mature organizations, you see that the visas, the MasterCards, right? The, you know, JP Morgan Chase, the CISO there reports to the CEO. Um, they very much have a first, second and third stage teams. And they've got different, you know, kind of divisions across their teams. And, and some of their teams are siloed, right? So the interaction has to be purely professional for a slew of reasons so that there's no cover-ups kind of going on. And so, so an average day of a CISO could be very, very diverse based on the size of an organization and, and budget risk, et cetera, especially industry, by the way, industry matters. Well, good. I, and I think that helps people understand the diversity of the activities that a CISO does. Correct. So James, your experience is deep and broad and you've applied that to your podcast. So let's talk about the what that messaging is to your podcast audience, who that audience is, and kind of the frequency and kind of what they're needing to be up to speed on the developments in the industry. Yeah, so my podcast has gone through a slew of changes in the last 30 days, right? So so one, um, you know, the CyberHub podcast is a show I do daily, uh, Monday through Thursday, 9 a.m. Eastern, live. It's on you know, any sort of social media channel you can, you can find our podcast on it's predominantly practitioners and CISOs that tune into the show. I've got some CIOs and CTOs as well that tune in and it's taking all these headlines that come across you and then smack you in the face and make you feel like the world's crumbling around you kind of says, well, let's read into these headlines for just a few minutes. And what do you really need to do? Is this a headline you should be paying attention to, or is it something you should just kind of shake off? Um, and what does a, this data breach mean? I mean, a big one, you know, at the time we're recording, this is the move it, the progress move it data breach that's affected 347 different organizations. So look at that data breach and you go, wow, that's significant. Is it 18 million victims? So put that on a scale of Marriott five, six years ago, 500 million. Equifax, 240 million Americans plus an additional 30 million businesses. So where does move it really rank? Right? It, it doesn't. Um, it, it, it's not even a speck in the greater realm of, of what, what happens. So that that's a podcast I do daily. I've retired and sunset at CISO Talk podcast. Okay. Um, that podcast will no longer be coming back. Goodbye Privacy is going to be making a strong comeback in November. And we're starting a brand new show that's going to be only on Twitter. Uh, rumble and parts part, parts on YouTube, as well as our Substack, 
Um, and we're, we're going to start tackling kind of significant cybersecurity conversations that I think are often taboo, aren't really discussed. There's, you know, one of my favorite world leaders, uh, Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu was on the Lex Friedman podcast last week. Uh, if you haven't listened to it, it's, it's great. I love Lex Friedman. Um, but then the prime minister of Israel says this in the podcast, cyber is in everything. We know cyber is in everything. That's the prime minister of one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world saying on a global podcast that cyber is in everything. Mm-hmm. Now let's get that across to every CEO, chief risk officer, chief compliance officer, chief financial officer, chief technology officer, and board of directors across the, across the world and the country. Cyber is in everything. And that's the point of that podcast. How well, do all these different bits and pieces come together? Well, we look forward to that launch and maybe we'll have you on here when it comes out to make sure our audience is tuned in. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited about that one. Well, terrific. So I know that you're excited about that. Tell us if you can switch now to things you've worked on recently outside of your podcast that excite you and kind of what you're working on that kind of really is giving you the passion now. So, so great question, Larry. And, and it, it was hard. It's, it's hard for me to kind of put that all in one place, but I'll tell you this, the adoption of AI, the rapid adoption of AI has been front and center in everything I do in, in, in my most recent role. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why um, we're adopting AI at a geometrical pace. So what a lot of people don't understand. Um, where AI was three months ago to where it is today is unfathomable in terms of growth and the amount of money that's being invested in adopting that tech as a security practitioner that keeps you awake for a multitude of reasons. One, what are we changing and what risks does that introduce? Do we have enough data to handle that risk? Number two, how do I even adopt AI within my own cybersecurity program? What tools could come in really handy to help my team have an upper hand and, and a greater advantage against the attackers and adversaries that are targeting my organization. But then that, that brings up a whole new set of challenges, which we're seeing now more of, which is quantum computing and data security. The idea that the RSA standard RSA encryption model is dead, dead. The moment a publicly available quantum computer, which we know IBM has one, Google has one. We know China's got a few of those at their university levels. Um, start to take encrypted data where we think that standard AES-256 encryption is, is great. Well, the quantum computer at Google broke that encryption in seconds and China took it a few minutes. And so we know that there's going to be a new threat to our data security coming from quantum computing. And that's one of the big projects I'm working on right now, which is identifying how can we really re-encrypt this data and how can we ensure that we develop data, that security for data at the quantum level, um, which which has been a challenge because NIST has struggled to find a good math model for that. So how do you stay ahead of that? I mean, do you have to now go 256 and above? It seems like these quantum computers are going to solve that pretty quick as well. So you, you, you have to go through a different model of what encryption is. So encryption is a public-private key exchange. That key exchange no longer works. 
no longer works because quantum computer can break that key exchange. So it's not about the 256 bit encryption. It's about the key management system. Okay. How do I manage the keys for my encryption? Because when I'm breaking encryption, I'm, I'm essentially breaking the keys. So you got to find a dynamic key management process and you've got to be able to add a level of authentication to that key management beyond someone's email address, beyond a specific IP address. All of those could be masked. All of those, you could fool a system with that, right? We know that to be the case today. So th there's a few ways to go about it. You've got to address the key management system. You have to be able to look at your encryption algorithm and go, how do I create a more dynamic state of encryption uh, across? And how do I encrypt data in transit different from data in motion to data at rest to, you know, uh, financial data? I mean, when you, when you think of PCI level, <laughs> PCI 5.0, which is going to be coming really, really, you know, 4.0 is going to be, is, is, is almost near deployment. 5.0 is going to be all around quantum. Okay. Well, that's good. That brings me to some of the other questions that we have for you as we dig deeper. Uh, and it's about the risk and mitigation for information security. And a lot of our audience are business leaders that run operating companies or involved with operating companies and even financial institutions, but they may not have the level of knowledge that you do. And so I want to make sure that we put talk about it at a level that uh, most people can understand. Uh, and so what? let's start out with what are the common misunderstandings about managing information security risks that companies have, growth companies have, even banks have, that they need to be aware of and that we need to set straight? So I'm, I'm going to go back to the quote that I shared a few minutes ago around Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's right. uh, quote on, on the Lex Friedman podcast, which is cyber isn't everything. Mm -hmm. If you're a leader of any sort of business, irregardless to whether you're in financial services, manufacturing, retail, entertainment, it makes no difference, right? Um, the moment you'd say cyber isn't everything, you understand that cyber's in your data, it's in your applications development, it's in your compliance, it's in legal, it's in finance, it's in DevOps, it's in operations, it's in every part of your, it's in every bit and part of your aspect. And so you've got to really set it in and understand that if you want to really develop, manage and deploy an effective risk mitigation strategy across, you know, information security and more, more, more importantly, cybersecurity as a whole, because under cyber, you have all your different umbrellas, right? You, you can have application security and data security and compliance and legal and finance and so forth. You've got to understand that security plays a part in all of that. And you've got to make security a partner to your business, not an auditor, not a view on the side, not let's build and then have security look at it. Rather, you've got to have security be part of that conversation from the very beginning. This is our business end goal. This is where we want to get. How do we get there the fastest and most secure way while managing the risk? And, and every business has a risk appetite, right? Sure. As long as the CISO understands that risk appetite and the security teams understand it, then the shortcuts you make would be within the risk scope that the board and the business has set in play for the organization. And so you're instead of trying to play catch up on the back end, you're, you're really kind of putting it into into the foundation of, of the product you're building. So you inherently build a better product. And the White House has talked about this now. 
right, the National Cybersecurity Strategy document released by the White House in March of this year with the implementation plan released just over the weekend talks about shifting the li- the responsibility and liability from the customer to the software company, meaning hmm. you, Mr. Bank Institution, have now developed an application in-house. You can no longer say it's your customer's responsibility to secure it. It's your responsibility to secure it. You're the software vendor. So if you're using, as a bank, if you use Fiserv or, you know, Finzact or, or, or Savannah or whoever you want to use uh, uh, as part of your backend, they're now responsible for the security. Now, that doesn't absolve you as a bank from still having your own security to it, but it, but it, it sure passes the buck to them as well. And so it, it'll inherently create a better ecosystem. So how does a business owner, a $10 million business owner, kind of manage this security uh, and walk through it without a CISO or without somebody with that deep of knowledge? Do they need to get a, a fractional CISO? Do they, what do they need to yeah. do to take that next step? I mean, I mean, you could get a fractional CISO, right? You could hire a full service, you know, MSSB, a managed service, a managed security services provider. So most companies hire an IT company to manage your IT, hire an IT security company to do it. Um, and, and let them manage kind of everything A to Z and understand, you know, as a business owner, understand what your risk is. You know your business better than anyone else. And at a business that does 10 million in revenue, you live, breathe your business <laughs> in and out. Sure. So, so you know the parts of your business that are that are most sensitive. And that's where you want to focus the little budget you have to invest in security and in, in hardening those environments. The you know, the cat and mouse game in cybersecurity and in information security is the cost of the attack. Do good yep. b- blocking and tackling, do good basics, and the cost of the attack goes up, meaning you eliminate some of the easy, lazy criminals that are coming after you. They're going to have the more powerful criminals come after you at that point. But, you know, I'd rather lose to Muhammad Ali than, you know, a coming up fighter in a ring, right? I mean, if you're going to get knocked out by someone, I'd rather get knocked out by Ali or Tyson and not some, you know, no name Jerry Quarry, for an example, or, or someone no one's ever heard of. Sure. And and they make a name over knocking me out. So when I guess when I hear how, how you're describing it, and I'm a $10 million business owner, I hear big dollar signs in terms of the cost to implement but I also know that it's bigger if I don't. No. So so that's also a very kind of if we do a myth busters piece right now, yes. that's let's let's bust that myth. Security is expensive. People who sell you security want to tell you that. Right? Security is not expensive. Most of security could be done with a few th- in in a, in a business the size of 10 million. Let me let me phrase this very very easily. If you're a small company up to, let's say, 50 to 75 employees doing 10 million a year in revenue, you're a small family office, you could practically get a, if if you're on a Microsoft stack, you do the E5 license and you get hire a good MSSB that that manages it for you and you're potentially spending 100 grand a year on having really good security. Okay. And... I think that's an important point uh, in the MythBusters, kind of the proportion to your ten million in revenue, hundred thousand dollars cost. 
What other myths do we need to bust? You know, if you want to bust, you want to bust another myth um, that you need to hire uh, security leadership from the get go. You know, you can get a fractional CISO to help you, but really you need kind of, as your business grows and scales, you need, you know, hands um, that, that are joining part of your team. So if you're doing software development, you should hire a security engineer or a security architect um, to help. That that should be a first hire before you hire someone as leadership. Number two, um, Mythbusters, um, CISOs, most of them don't have a technological background. In fact, the more you look through the list, the more you realize a lot of them are lawyers or compliance officers or, 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 you know, people who, who don't really come from the, the IT world. So mm-hmm. understand what your business is and hire the right people for your business, right? So if, if you're a technology company, you want to hire a technological CISO. So you're looking for someone who's ran engineering and, and, and done infrastructure and IT and so forth. If you're running a governance type business, um, then you want to hire a, a more of a lawyer-based, compliance-based CISO with, with with that set of knowledge, skills, understanding mm-hmm. that, that that's where they're going to be. And again, that goes to kind of the first question you asked me when we kicked off the show, Larry, which is what does an average day of a CISO looks like? Well, tell me the company and I'll tell you what his day most likely would look like. Well, very good. So if I'm a non-technical business leader and I'm trying to hire a CISO and going through that process, where do I start in terms of kind of, are there organizations I should start talking to, to kind of work my way through the process to find the right one? And then how do I know it's the right one? So, so I think before you talk to anyone, you got to ask yourself, what are my expectations of a CISO? Mm-hmm. So what's that job description look like? What are the skills I can't live without? And what are the skills that are nice to have? And, and, and I don't have, I can tell you that, you know, Last year, when when I think you and I hit the free agent market around the same time, um, you know, you, you have a lot of people approach you and you look at a d- lot of uh, job descriptions and you go, whoa, what, what, I don't understand what you want me to do, right? The role isn't clear. It's, I want you to do everything. Well, okay. On, on what budget? On what, with what team? No, no, no. You're going to be a one man team and it, it doesn't work. Be, be realistic about when you're bringing on a CISO as to what that job description is going to be like and what skills you're looking for. The CISO you get today doesn't necessarily have to be the guy you keep five years from now or three years from now. The fact is most CISOs stick around for 18 months and leave. Um, And that's simply because there's a lack of um, um, the job is a burnout job. It's a, it's it's really, really rough, right? You're doing 24 seven, almost Um, you're, you're on call. You're like a surgeon um, when you're a CISO. The moment there's an issue, you're, you're, you know, you pick up, doesn't matter what you're doing, you're leaving everything and you're, you're jumping into the, into the fire. So, so know that, but then you can reach out to a ton of organizations and recruiters, right? There's a ton of really good recruiters out there that help you find the right CISO, define, you know, what skills you're looking for, what the job description should really look like and what that comp package should look like. Um, and so, and so it depends if you're, you know, you're a small owner of a business, you're likely looking for a fractional CISO at the very beginning, uh, start to help address kind of that governance and policy side of the house. And as you grow in revenue, you get to a point where you need someone full time. Most of the time you don't even need a CISO at that point. You're probably going to need an engineer or an architect or 
someone along those lines, you bring them on. And then as, as kind of that team scales, then you bring on your CISO. It's a good idea to have CISO be kind of the second or third person that joins your security team rather than the first. Okay. You're going to get more bang for the dollar that way. Well, that's an important insight. So as you're starting to bring on people into your organization, you're becoming more and more aware of cyber is everywhere. Then, uh, how do you build that culture in your organization? Because some cultures, some organizations don't have a very good culture about risk to start with. How do you build it around cyber? You know, so I, I like to call it, there's, there's a few ways to build, to build good one, uh, a good culture in a business. One is start, it's top down, right? So if you're the leader of the business, if, if you indicate that you care about security, then everyone around you is going to care about security. Now, the job of a good CISO is to evangelize security and build bridges among all the different stakeholders in the organization. And that means spending time with people. Mm -hmm. What's your priority? What are you working on? What are some of the things you're concerned about? Have you given any thought to information security or cybersecurity? Do you know what that entails to your part of the business and what's, what's, what's that like? Mm -hmm. And then you find the people who enjoy cyber across the organization and you turn those people into your champions. They become kind of your, uh, I was on a call cause you can't be everywhere all the time. Right. I was on a call with so-and-so and they were talking about X, Y, Z. I don't think that's good, you know, practice based on some of the conversations we've had. Uh, would you mind if I set up a call for you to kind of evaluate and give us some tips on how to avoid this risk or, or how to, you know, make sure that we're, we're not pushing a product out there or pushing a service out there that, uh, you know, isn't secure. And so you got to build evangel, you got to build ambassadors across the entire company. You got to find them and you've got to nurture those relationships. There's no easy path to doing this outside of, you know, I always say the first 90 days of a CISO, you're learning what your business is and you're building all the bridges to understand what, who all the key stakeholders are to help you really build out a program. And then from that point on that, that's what you're really working on. And, and that's critical, by the way, that's so important. Who, what's your board? Have you read your board minutes as a CISO? Mm -hmm. Have you brought up culture to the board? You know, one of the, one of the very um, common challenges for a lot of securities and let's, let's do a myth buster moment. Another one. Are you ready? Yeah. There's no site. The, the office of the CISO is one of the very few C-suite positions in corporate America and corporate global corporatism today that doesn't have a set, KPIs. So if you're a board member at three, four different companies and you get a presentation from the CISO, it'll be different every time because there's no set KPIs for security. So they're different at each organization and they're different at each organization and each CISO is going to set their own in terms mm -hmm. of how to address the complexity and the size and the threats. And, and sometimes those could be, Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad, <laughs> right? Depending on the CISO. Um, but, but, you know, when you look at how do you create a culture of security, it starts at the board level too. Are you talking about it? And it's not just the click rate, right? It's not just people clicking on, 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 on phishing emails. Oh, we went from 40% at our first test to five. It's good. It's nice. It, it's a good statistic. It makes it look like you're doing something, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really give you a true picture of what's happening from a security perspective. It doesn't, it's a, it's a false number. 
Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. So when you think about the data protection that we've gone through and talked about that, we've talked about the risk management activities that you can do. Uh, from a data management perspective, in terms of how to manage it, how to protect yourself from a resiliency perspective, any thoughts or ideas on that? So when you think of resiliency, <laughs> and resiliency is very, very core. By the way, you see that today, right? Um, some organizations haven't really put resiliency in their in their business continuity plan. And so you see that they'll go through a small cyber event that will take them offline for three, four weeks. That'll make their services unavailable for a period of time. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's because they're taking away that resiliency. You know, it's to me, you know, I, I kind of take that Larry and, I, and <laughs> I, I look at risk management from that perspective a little different. It's you, you've got to look at a few things. One, um, very few businesses have ever had any sort of long-term implications because of a cyber attack. I mean, Define long term, I guess. If you're long term, I mean, your customers haven't can't interact with you for a week or a month, and that's a key and critical. Will they go elsewhere? Will it have an impact on that business? Look at um, WannaCry and um, Cisco, the shipping company, the, the the Dutch shipping company that was offline for a month and a half, didn't even know where some of their boats were for three months, for sorry, three to four weeks. Um, because of that ransomware attack, they recovered fairly handsomely pretty quickly within about 18 months. Okay. JP Morgan Chase regained their market cap after their 2014 15 breach within two years, right? They're now the market leader in the banking standard when it comes to InfoSec, right? I mean, Jamie Dimon said that he's investing, a, they are already investing about a billion dollars a year in cyber. And at the White House summit six, seven months ago, he pledged another 20 billion over five years to invest in a cybersecurity, right? So, I mean, again, can you create resiliency? Sure, but at the end of the day, you have to know that from a stock perspective, it's 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 not gonna be there. From a business perspective, you gotta have clear and honest communication with your customers and partners. If you're going through an event, it's better to be transparent and say, we're going through a cyber event. We don't have a lot of details. We'll make them available as we see them to the detriment of all legal experts, you're going to keep your customers that way. Because you're giving them transparency. You're being honest with them. Prime example, SolarWinds, December of 2020, Microsoft was the victim of the victim, right? SolarWinds was the initial victim. Microsoft was really the clear target of the Russians and Chinese when they hacked SolarWinds because they were able to steal Microsoft source code. And from there expose a whole bunch of vulnerabilities and hacked the whole slew of companies through Microsoft vulnerabilities. Microsoft launched a page and they were giving real-time updates six to seven times a day of what was happening. They built so much trust in the market that their stock price wasn't even impacted. I've got a whole article on Substack. It's free. People can go read it. It's called the Microsoft Doctrine. And I show how the stock price didn't get impacted at all. I'll give you another example. The Microsoft not following their own darn advice. Microsoft several weeks ago had a bunch of DDoS attacks going on. Those denial of service attacks hindered users of Microsoft platforms, Azure particularly, and Office Online 
from being able to access those websites because there was an overflow of traffic. Microsoft for their end didn't even come out and admit it until two weeks later. But in that two weeks, anyone who knows something understands you guys were going through a DDoS attack. Microsoft didn't admit it. Stock plunged because now you've got an instability. During a cyber attack, people want stability. Your customers, your stakeholders, your shareholders, they want to know that even if you don't have all the answers, you've got it under control. So the more transparent you are within the legal kind of cage that your general counsel and outside counsel would give you, the better. And that's something you should be practicing. Yeah, I think that's great insight, James, because there's more and more denial of service, uh, ransomware, all these other attacks, and having a plan uh, to address those is key and critical, and I think that's really good insight. Yeah, have a plan, practice that plan. Don't just have a plan, make sure everyone knows what their part is in that plan. Very good. So I wanna get to the blind spot insider segment, which are submitted questions. But before we do that, are there anything that, any topics that you wanna talk about that we haven't talked about yet? You, You know, I think the one thing I'll tell you is there's a great need for partnership insecurity. So people who are listening, um, reaching out to a CISO or understanding that security is a partner to the process, not a, not a detractor will be better. By the way, smart CISOs don't say no. They say, let me find out how, right? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of people you want, uh, on your team. So, you know, I'd say that if, if you're hearing a lot of no's from your CISO, probably time to start shopping for one who's going to tell you, yes, but here's how we're going to have to do it. Well, very good. Uh, good insights. So I want to turn to the Blind Spot Insider segment. And for those who are listening who are not Blind Spot Insiders, please go and register at riskblindspots.com. That's plural because we all have them, riskblindspots.com. And you'll be able to access the answers to the Blind Spot Insider questions we're going to have for James next. James, I think the information you provided today it's going to be really a great value to our listeners and as well our business leaders, our bankers, the investors that listen to the show, so they have a better insight as to what to look for and be aware. Uh, and so one of the things, James, I want you to share with us for our audience is where they can find you and for your podcasts or reach, reach out to you. Sure. So the uh, easiest way to find me is on LinkedIn, James J. Azar. Um, and, and you can find me there. Also, my the pod, the website for my podcast is cyberhubpodcast.com, uh, C-Y-B-E-R-H-U-B-P-O-D-C-A-S-T.com. And my substack is, is really easy, jameshazer.substack.com. And that's where you find kind of uh, specialized uh, articles, um, stuff that I, I really kind of dig into, and, 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 and it's really, really a lot of fun. Well, great. So I want to recap for our listeners the key takeaways from James Azar during our episode 105, Information Security. We talked about data protection, data management, risk management activities, and he gave us a number of thoughtful responses to our blind spot insiders. So James, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on our show today and sharing all the information and the wealth of experience that you have. Thanks for having me on, Larry. I really appreciate it, and and I'm excited to have been part of the podcast. Thanks so much, Larry. Good to see you. 
Thank you for tuning in and joining this What the Risk podcast, designed to be a safe space to learn about risk, how to think about risk, and how to expose business blind spots. This podcast is about empowering you as business leaders to reduce the stress of the unknown risks in your business, as well as the stress of decision-making by being able to identify and mitigate potential risks through the right level of due diligence. So here are three quick next steps that I need you to do. Hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to make sure you don't miss future episodes and give us a five-star rating. Share the podcast with a peer. Both of you will gain visibility to what you didn't know existed in the blind spots. And go to riskblindspots.com, that's plural because we all have them, riskblindspots.com, to become a blind spot insider. You'll get exclusive advance notice of the next two episodes, so you can submit questions, topics, and suggestions for our show. And tell us if we have any blind spots. Continue with us on this journey as we learn to ask the right questions, expose potential pitfalls, and turn those what-the-risk moments into I've-got-this victories.